What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Drury Outdoors Warrior Percent Wild podcast, episode number 155. I am Tim Chelswick, and over there we got Matt Drury. And over there we got Greg Glessinger, Drury Outdoors team member and big buck killer. Hi, guys. How are you? We're good. So we've got the Missouri-Wisconsin connection going right now. And we've got a big show, uh, a big show lined up for folks today. I don't know that Greg has ever been on the podcast before, which is a crying shame, but we're about to rectify that. I blame Tim. <laughs> He's in charge of the guests. It's part of my job description, actually, to take the blame at Dury Outdoors. So you got that right. I was ready for it. <laughs> See, that was always my job description. But uh-huh. I've been here long enough. I finally hired somebody else that gets blamed. What is it they say rolls downhill? I yeah. can't remember. Yeah, yeah, you got it. <laughs> Matt, what do you have in the background of your office there on the floor? So I had uh, Ryan Kirby, who, as you know, and, and probably many of our uh, people in the audience and listening know, Ryan Kirby is one of the best wildlife artists going right now. In my opinion, he's the best uh, uh, at using the current like technology. If you've ever seen him and how he, you know, paints a picture, it's it's truly unbelievable how he does it and utilizes technology to do it. Well, this is his uh, his painting that he did or his, his, his drawing that he did that he kind of mass produces now about aging a whitetail. I'll grab it real quick. It's pretty cool. It's, it's talks about aging a, a whitetail and shows you kind of what you go through from a year and a half all the way up to six and a half and what you're looking for and in the body. And so it's not just art, but it, it actually teaches you something too. So. I've had that, I had that sitting in my office <clears throat> there at the studio as knows for a long time. And uh, I've been meaning to do something with it. Well, I had to go into the studio probably three weeks ago or four weeks ago and pick up something. And I thought, I saw it sitting there in a tube and I thought, well, if I'm ever going to do something, now's my chance. <laughs> I got a little extra time on my hands. So I, you know, I ordered a print, um, ordered the frame and had it chipped in. I went with something that was kind of a barnwood look to go with the theme. And, you know, I was all excited. I got the frame in on Friday. I came downstairs. I put the, you know, the, the, the painting in there and I kind of measured wrong <laughs> because I cut off the bottom of Ryan. I cut off Ryan's name basically at the bottom of this thing. So Ryan, if so you're shout out, out there, to Ryan Kirby. Yeah. If you're listening, I'm sorry, but I just gave you some free uh, publicity there. So <laughs> it's my way to say, I'm sorry. You know, a lot of people talk about how good Ryan is and he's, he's good, but they've never seen my whitetail sketches. I just took like less than a minute. Yeah, that's pretty good. Actually. Pretty anatomical. Those are antlers there. That's the body area, and it's you can't see the other legs because they're on the other side of the body. But are those others or less than? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, here's a a quick fun fact for people out there that are fans of Deercast: that the image in Deercast track that uh, graphic that we use, where you kind of place your cursor and you move it around to figure out where you shot the deer, that is a Ryan Kirby original that we uh, we paid him to uh, take off his hands and license from him. So uh, he's, he's a talented dude. He did, heck, it's on YouTube and DeerCast, a video a few years ago where we 
surprised Mark with a painting of Danger. It was called Danger's Calling. And it was, uh, I think that's what they called it. It was pretty awesome where he painted kind of a final scene. It was the last Draconics picture that Mark ever got of Danger as he was headed to Mark's blind to get shot. <laughs> and uh, Ryan took that and he turned it into a, a beautiful painting. I hope someone does that to me for my last few moments on this earth someday. What? You just sitting out like this? <laughs> what, what are you comes, looking for? Here comes the, the nurse's aid to uh, dad the drool off of Tim Le- Tim's lips. And then yeah, I always, I always thought about that. It's like, man, I wonder if anybody would ever be so kind to do something like that for me. And it's, it's just probably not going to happen. Can I answer that question for you? <laughs> yeah, you can. I already got the answer. <laughs> It's a no. It's a firm no. Well, speaking of big deer, we mentioned Greg Glessinger as the big deer killer. Greg, has your your past few years have been pretty auspicious as far as deer hunters are concerned? I would say I'll probably be more blessed than anything. I think it's the old, you know, fail to plan is planned to, to uh, I guess, whether it, it failed to plan is planning to fail, I think is the old saying. And you know, I don't, I don't hunt as much as a lot of people do in this industry, but I definitely put the time in 365 days a year to really think about it outside of season. And when we do have the opportunities to improve our properties and make habitats and adjustments, um, that's where we spend a lot of our time. And um, it seems to have been really paying off in the last probably five to six years is really when I really dove into it. And the land management has absolutely paid off because between major league and extra innings, I mean, deer that a lot of people just won't see just, I mean, the sheer size of those bucks was incredible. Yeah. Um, you know, I think age structure is always uh, a huge factor in all of this, but, uh, you know, um, having multiple sources of protein and food sources and woody brows and grasses and having the whole golden corral buffet, I called it, it, you know, all months year round is critical. And once I stepped out of, uh, well, let me backtrack. I'll use a statement that I learned probably 20 years ago, 22 years ago from Ralph, Ralph Insulero. He told me I was walking, walking from a seminar that he was giving and I offered him to buy him lunch and he said, sure. Didn't know him at all. This is before I was in the industry. And he gave me 45 minutes of the time. And it all came together at the very end of the conversation, which was, Greg, he goes, you're only as good as the ground that you hunt on. And that's when it really turned for me that I need to start being more of a land steward and less of a hunter. And if you do that, then the, the rewards are going to follow. Yeah. And ever since that time is when I really started truly trying to understand habitat, forage, you know, hinge cutting, which I know that's part of the question today, um, just basically general land improvements to give them the opportunity to reach their potential. And I never thought of it that way. And ever since then, it's been really the more time I put into the land, the more it's giving back. So it's been an amazing experience for the past, like I said, six or seven years. That statement from Ralph really makes me understand just how truly screwed I am. (laughs) Why is that, Tim? (laughs) Well, I have a lot of uh, horseback riders, backpackers. Just the land that I hunt is just plain hard to hunt in the first place. 
uh, I deal with a lot of intrusions because it's it's a lot of suburbia. So it just kind of goes with every now and you know there's some big deer walking around, but man, uh, the, the the ability for me to control the property because usually these are handshake deals and they're smaller parcels. I'm not I'm not able to put in big food plots things like that. I'm really hunting traveling deer or bedding deer. And so, uh, so it's just, it's a little bit of a different ball game. So I have to be strategic and leave a light footprint if I'm going to continue to hunt in some of these places. Yeah, I understand. We, you know, I didn't start out this way. I mean, I started out with a little 40 acres and have grown ever since then. And, um, it's, I understand your pain. I was once there, uh, you know, I work on a, uh, I think it was my third or fourth property was 160 acres. And the first, I got to think about this. The first year that was shot was 142 inch and was shot by a friend of mine, not even me. Mm. And it was one of those things that we just kept putting more energy and, and energy into it and effort and things do happen. But to your point, you got to have the property that you control and try to manage and improve. Otherwise it, it can be very frustrating. Yeah. Well, and so, the, go ahead, Matt. Well, I was going to say, so kind of take us through your steps when you look at your pieces of property, say your, your 40 acre, first 40 acres, and you want to put a game plan together. What approach do you take when you're trying to put your game plan together to say, here are the areas that I need to work on or improve on or, you know, whatever. That first piece, actually, um, you know, when, when you're, we only have so much capital to, to go with. You got, and you only can afford a forty or sixty or eighty. I was focusing more on what's around me than the than the piece itself. And this particular piece had huge agricultural fields all the way around it. Um, and this little uh, farm had all the bedding. And so I knew that they weren't going to go out there and obviously bed, but it was a obviously destination. So my whole goal was hinge cutting, making them a home and then trying to slow them down so that the time they did jump the fence, it was plus or minus dark or low light. And so we, we made huge alfalfa fields and huge brassica fields and huge um, uh, uh, clover fields to slow them because we had an incredible bedding, but I didn't have any food. And so then we put cedar uh, planted, I don't know how many hundreds of pine trees along the property line to screen it so when they're in those food plots those other guys across the way couldn't see in they knew they were there they couldn't see them and it worked it took us about four or five years to accomplish that um but by the time i sold it the farm was completely different than when i started how hard was it to get those cedars to to grow i've heard you know sometimes people when they go to plant trees probably cedar trees but when they go to plant certain kind of trees you know the deer kind of you know, and the habitat in general is just kind of stunning the growth. They're not letting them get out at all. Yep. So we, we planted a bunch of pines um, because that's what's more native up in this part of the world. And um, we fenced them off, um, uh, which was a lot of work, but it was the only way to keep them off from getting rubbed and everything else. And then when they got to a certain stage, then we took them off. Um, it was a huge task and a huge project. Um, thank God we had access to a bobcat with an auger because it took, I, I can't remember for how many weekends, um, to do it, but it's one of those things that you put the time in and the rewards always seem to, to give you a fact or a 10 back. But it's, uh, that was probably one of my, my biggest learned curve starting so early in this whole thing is when I, when Ralph told me that start with the land first and the deer will come, that's when I completely revisited 
and and reset myself instead of trying to find the best deer location or or stand location it was about let's make the property better and and they'll want to hang out longer we'll give you more chance to harvest them and that's when it all changed for me probably 20 years ago plus or minus that timeline well, as much as Greg is an accomplished land manager, he's also killed some big deer. And it was interesting. He and I were talking about the show prior and talking about topics to cover. And uh, and we, we kind of landed on the idea of shot sequence and actually the, the mental game behind shooting. And, and Greg will elaborate more on that. But it, it's interesting because if if someone's going to break under pressure with a big deer in front of him, Greg has definitely been in situations where he's had really big deer in front of him, And it'll be interesting to hear Greg, you go through and talk about what your mentality is like, what the physicality of it is so that people can take those can take elements of that and apply it to their own hunting scenarios. Because we know it doesn't matter. You may have the best property. You may have the best gear. You may be in the best location, but if you can't <laughs> those final seconds of releasing an arrow or taking the shot in general that makes or break makes or makes or breaks the entire setup for that so take us through how you prepare for those last few moments of truth well i I think it's it's broken down in three segments which is equipment physical and mental and they all are in my opinion somewhat related um i really focused on the equipment i have two different rigs which is one set for whitetail and one set for out west like elk or bigger moose whatever it may be which is going to be a slower setup and in a much heavier arrow um why is that uh because my whole goal in the whitetail world is to have a setup that's going to be pushing an arrow roughly 310 to 320 feet per second and why is that important it's because it's one pin out to 30 yards and if you can kind of take out any element that you have to think about um, prior to the shot, it's the best thing you have to process. So um, I really take my rigs apart and really kind of study the arrows. Uh, you know, prime example, uh, victory arrows If on the uh, BAP TKOs. They're nine, 9.5 grams per inch. And the VAPs, the standard VAPs are, I think, 8.5 or 8.7 per inch. Well, there's a difference of eight or nine grams per, per inch. Well, you take that times 28, you're almost pushing, you know, call it 20, almost 30 grams. Well, that's a lot when you're trying to find 10, 15, 20 feet per second. So yeah. there's a complete mindset that I go through every single year, um, depending on what arrows we're setting up in the, in the bow that I'm selecting to shoot uh, before I even go into the woods. Because my number one goal before I hit ball is to have an arrow that's going to be going 310 to 320 feet per second that I know I can shoot zero to 30 yards with one pin. Because when you're in the timber, sometimes things happen fast. And more often than not, you're probably not going to be allowed to shoot something more than 30 yards in the timber, most likely. Maybe it depends on the cover and so forth. But more often than not, that's the case. So if you can take that element out, you don't have to think about it. You want a flat trajectory. That's right. For a short guy like me that has, you know, a short draw length, I, I just can't seem to reach those type of speeds. Um, you know, what, so what is your, what is your arrow weight, Matt? Boy, you put me on the spot. <laughs> I think, I think I'm shooting, I know I'm shooting the victory back and 
I get good penetration, but I can't think what the off the top of my head. I don't know what the arrow weight is. Um, but, but most most guys don't know their arrow weight. It's not it's not it's something not unless you start yep. to really right. geek out on this stuff. You just you shoot something that shoots straight and penetrates good. And- the, yeah. So so I switched to the VAP probably. I don't know, five, six years ago, because Mark had been shooting it. And, and I was telling him how I wasn't getting any pass-throughs. And in general, you know, I was shooting slow. And he said, you should switch to this VAP. You'll definitely get better penetration. And I was getting probably, you know, four to six more inches of penetration with those VAP arrows. And so, you know, I stuck, I stuck with that as far as like, past that and geeking out past that. I really, I'm not sure, you know, I don't know. Um, but my draw length's 27 and a half and I pull like 63, you know, 62, 63 pounds. And I just can't seem to get, you know, and, and I'm really not, I've never really been that concerned about it because I've never shot fast speeds. I don't know that I've ever had a bow that shot over 300 feet per second. Once I was, you know, with my full setup, um, so for me, I always have a 20, 30, 40, you know, on down the line for my pins. What, you know, in those instances, what do you do? Because it's a part of my life where I'm I'm constantly ranging things around where I think he's going. And, and it's the most chaotic part, too. I, I hate it. I hate that part of it because by the time you do this and put it in your pocket and and the hardest part of all that, in my opinion, is when you have the nerves is connecting back on your D loop. And so don't get in a draw and you're just hoping he's not moved, you know, cause five yards for me, it makes a big difference. Um, and, and you know, dad, had, he was kind of giving me crap for this once. He's like, why do you got so many pins? I'm like, I'm telling you, if I didn't have that 20 pin and I just shot one pin out to 30, I got a difference of, of this much and, and, and drop. And it's been like that ever since I shot. So in those instances, you have any advice for a guy that does have to shoot a couple pins? Yeah, sure. You know, it's, I'm such a geek on this stuff. So I would love to know your airway because, you know, I, I've actually got it broken down by the gram within veins, which is, I'm a huge fan of the new Levi Borgen tack veins that he just came out here uh, called a year ago, eight months or six months ago. Um, depending on the vein, you can go from three veins that weigh 12 all the way up to the 2.75 veins that I think all three of them weigh uh, 18 grams. So you got a difference of call it plus or minus six, six grams. So you start adding this six grams, then you can do an overdraw. You know, uh, my whitetail setup this year is going to force me to go to an overdraw because I'm, I want to shoot a little heavier arrow. So I'm going to cut off probably an inch, maybe an inch and a quarter, maybe an inch and a half. I don't know. I'm still working on that. So that's going to save another, uh, call it nine grams per inch. So that's so about 14 to 15 grams. You add that with the different veins, you're going to be knocking on plus or minus 20 grams. So if you really start breaking down every single element of your your rig and your arrow, you'll be surprised how much speed you can potentially gain. No different than, you know, penetration you talk about. I don't know what broadhead, I know it's a rage, but I don't know which one. I've got Derek shooting the rage and that's, it's a 1.5 cut. Why? Because I want, I want him to have more penetration. I want two holes, not one. Yeah. And, I shoot a two, three, I definitely shoot a, a, a wide cutting, you know, and I know that's part of, you know, the, the, the issue, but I, I love having that huge entry hole going in and I, you know, I don't, I don't get a ton of pastures, pastures, but, um, well, ask yourself, and, and this is, this is all a, you know, personal preference, but 
I'm all about having two holes instead of one, which is, um, I agree with the 2.3 is amazing, amazing cuts. Same with the tri-pound, the slap cups. I think it's a slap cuts like just over two inches wide. Um, But for me, with all the years of experience I've had, is I'd rather see two holes than one. Obviously, you got two opportunities for blood holes. Sometimes one clogs up, the other one doesn't. Um, And so I'm all about driving that arrow into those animals the best I can. And, you know, whatever setup you can do to do that, um, just takes a little homework. It's not a lot. And you'll be surprised, I think, Matt, and I'll be happy to help you offline because this is my passion uh, outside of work. Um, it's very easy for me to dissect it and get back when you go, you know, this is what I would do to save 15 or 20 grams. And it might, you might gain instead of, instead of going 20 to 30 yard pen, you might go 25 to 35. So if you can only gain five yards, it's another five you didn't have. So I try to take the, that whole element out as much as I can. Um, I do a lot of, uh, they call it a bow fit exercise as well, which you can go online and look this up. It's a basically a glorified rubber band. You can buy them at Cabela's and Amazon and so forth. And I have it in my closet. And every morning and every night, I grab left uh, about 20 to 30 poles, right 25 to 30 poles. And now, after doing that for a year, I'm pulling 75 pounds. Um, I didn't think I could do that a year ago. Um, it just takes conditioning and really what you want out of it. And with your shorter draw, I think you'd be surprised if you put that in your closet and hang it up every single day that you look at it, it reminds you to grab it for 15, 20 seconds. It's all you need to do. It's packable. When you travel, you can throw it in your luggage. I take it everywhere I go. Um, And when your muscles are that much stronger, everything becomes easier. It's got to also impress your wife too. (laughs) No, unfortunately it doesn't. Not at all. <laughs> 64. Dang, 65. When you like this, I mean, I could just naturally pull. I know what you're talking about though. And actually, you know, I work with a trainer and we do some similar exercises in the gym that, you know, as far as pulling back this way and pulling back the other way, you, you know, there are some things that you can do and, and just strengthen up those, your shoulder and your back muscles and all that stuff to help pull a higher weight. I have, you know, I, I think it's just a chronic issue in our family because my grandma Lucy has it and Mark and Terry and, and I have it. Some really bad shoulder problems. And 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 I probably didn't help my cause this past year uh, during during the rut. I drew back on a doe that was really giving us some fits in a food plot. And then she busted me on my draw, went out. I held for probably two, three minutes. And then finally I let down but then she came back out. So I real quick, I drew again. And ever since then, man, I, I've been working just to kind of rehab my shoulder. That was like first week of November. And finally I'm starting to feel where it's not just in kind of pain every single day. It just hit or miss now. But you know, I, I think we just got, I don't know, it's just chronic shoulder issues in our family. Cause my grandma has the same exact problem. And, uh, so it kind of prevents my point is it kind of prevents us from going up in the heavier weights, sure. uh, just from a pure pain standpoint. Sure. But, but if you, if you, you know, the whole exercise things, which I, I do as well, but if you don't make it easy on yourself, you won't do it consistently. And I think that's the part that people uh, don't put value in. And that's why when I have it, I literally hang it in my closet. So when I go to bed or I get in the morning, I'm putting clothes on. I see it. It's hanging there for a reason. Yeah. So it literally only takes me less than a minute to do do both arms. And I hang it up and I do it at night. And then that's it. And you'll be surprised, Matt. I think 
What you were you for, shooting? How much poundage were you shooting? I was shooting uh, 65, 66. Um, and then last year, two years ago, I jumped up to 70 and then 72. And then now this year, it's, it's 75. Dang, um, you're ready so, to kill all of them. So, you know, I think it's one of those things, if you do it, you know, with patience and stay after it, it's, it's quite simple to achieve. Sure. Can it's we ed- can we edit out Matt's reference to hunting uh, an African potentially <laughs> indigenous? Game used to yeah. be okay, Tim. We had Pete on the podcast. He talked about killing like I, ten of them. Yeah, I don't want to trigger anyone that might be listening. I'd hate for right. this to be a unsafe space for people to yeah to listen. <laughs> Greg, you mentioned uh, so equipment is one aspect. What else are you, are you thinking of in terms of the, sh- the shot sequence and making that happen? Well, we go back to the, the equipment, physical and mental. And then, the other, you know, the physical side is not only that, but I think Matt touched it and you've got to realize your limits, which is if you're really only efficient at 30 or 35 or 40 yards, whatever that may be, in the heat of the moment, make sure you don't go outside of those limits because probably you're not going to be effective and you're only going to be upset at yourself, potentially wounded an animal you're not going to find. So once you identify those limits, make sure you really – have truth to yourself and stay within it. Um, and that's, I know it's hard to do when, um, you know, the buck of your lifetime or a, a mature buck's in front of you, but um, you got to do your both yourself and the, the animal justice. Um, you know, the mental side is probably the part that I, I don't think none of us talk much about. And um, it really came full circle to me when I saw Major League for the very first time. And if you haven't seen the major league or this deer is unfamiliar with you, you can go on the Drew Outdoors YouTube channel and you can type in major league 203 and it'll pop up and you can enjoy the hunt and it'll make more sense uh, listening to this podcast. But uh, the first opportunity that I, that I seen him, um, he actually controlled my mind like no other. Um, yes, it was my first 200 inch deer that I seen on the hoof. Um, in person, but I had never been controlled by an animal mentally and physically. I saw him for, oh, it was probably a good minute and he literally froze me. I couldn't process. Um, I couldn't put any, any ideas into my head of what do I need to do next? It was just like, it was an all moment that was completely in slow motion. And as he went by my first shot window opportunity, I woke up and I was like, oh my gosh, I'm going to blow this. I'm going to blow this if I don't get my act together. And then here comes the second opportunity. Unfortunately, as you will see, there was a limb that uh, was coming up with vitals and it was not only, I think it was 55 or 56 or 57 yards away. Um, It was too far anyway. Um, But at that moment, when I got home that night, I sat and I thought, okay, mentally is more important than physically. Because if you're mentally not engaged and can't overcome this stuff, you'll, you'll never succeed. And so at that moment, the fact that we're going back in the next day, I said, it doesn't matter the size of the deer, size of the antler, or whatever it may be. You just got to cancel it out, stay within yourself, and shut everything out. And if you notice, ever since that hunt, um, and you'll see this in all the hunts that Casey's with me, Casey will ask me, Greg, I've got him. Are you, are you with me? He'll say certain things and you'll never hear me respond. I'm dead quiet. I'm complete in my own zone. I just take, I hope that he's on the deer and he tells me he's on. And that's all I really care about because I need to focus on one thing and one thing only. Nothing else matters. And I think that mental game is tough to do. But once you get over that hump, um, it's amazing what you can achieve. Um, 
And Casey always gets mad at me after he's hunts. He's like, dude, you're not talking. It's because now he's used to it. And I'm so much in his zone. I, I won't respond. I just won't do it. Maybe it takes my mindset away from what I'm trying to do. And he's there to do one thing and I'm there to do one thing. So just do it and we'll do fine. Um, That's personally how I feel about it. I actually, I, I know the camera guy thinks that they're helping by saying, Hey, you got this dude or that it drives me nuts. I, I know what I got to do. Like, I, I don't want to hear from them. I, it's not to be mean. I just don't, I am concentrating. I don't want to hear from them. Like, I know what I got to do to, to, to make it happen. And that actually throws me off more than helps me that the chit chat, like, all I want to know is that you're, you're on them. And then right before I get ready to shoot, I'm going to ask you if you're on them one more time, like you do your job, I'll do mine. But I think, a camera guy's senses, man, it's a big deer. Or we, you know, maybe they've been with like Casey or whoever, they know that they've been with you all that time and you're chasing this animal. It's such a hard, you know, opportunity to, to even get to see that animal. And so I think they think they're helping you out there and, and trying to calm you down. But in all reality, that's the last thing I want to hear from. I want to, like Pete Shepley told me this a long time ago, and I think it's like one of Pete's tips. It's like, you know, give yourself a job, you know, to do. And, and it kind of helps slow the game down as Jim Tomia says, and if the mind back on, on task and in focus for me, it's always, you know, making sure my cameras are recording. Cause you know, that's the other thing. A lot of times our camera guys are controlling the tact cams or the secondary angles. I personally like controlling my own tact cams because it gives me one more thing to concentrate on. You know, all right, are they rolling? Are they, yep, they're rolling. I'm continuing to check on them. It, it takes my focus from only looking at him and getting too nervous. And a lot of that's dependent on how long they're out there. You know, those rut hunts, sometimes you don't have time to think of it at, at, at all, mm-hmm. but they're coming down a field you know, and they're eating and slowly working their way towards you. You have a lot of times in some cases. And so personally, I like to try to give myself things to do or focus on to help alleviate, you know, is the um, rheostat on, uh, you know, my pins is, you know, those types of things that, that, you know, just making sure that all my gear is out of the way. So when I draw, I don't screw up or those types of things are what I think of on the mental side to, kind of prepare myself for the shot but you you don't know it until you have to go through it really well and i think that's all part of it and i think that comes back to you know staying within this mental game of things you know uh the one thing i learned as well in that major league hunt if you notice my first shot was a clean clean miss and um after going back that night reviewing the footage i was anticipating his drop is i put it really right on the crease of his of his belly anticipating he was going to drop into the arrow he didn't do it um, now going back and watch the video, you will hear the wind speed in the timber. And that wind speed was probably, I think at that day was 14 to 16 miles an hour. And I had no idea until that hunt that how much that wind speed and those leaves covered up your movement and sound and the, and, and, and the flight of the arrow. So since then, if I'm in the timber and that wind speed is say north of 12, 13, 14 miles an hour. I'm, I'm going to put it right on him because more often than not, he's not going to hear it. Yep. That's um, a pretty stiff wind too. You don't think about it, but when you're out there, you, you know, and, and you're not in a box blind or something like that, when you're in a tree, that's actually a pretty decent wind, you know, because once you get up to like 20, 
you're like, dang, it's freaking yeah. howling out here when you're in a yeah. tree swaying back and forth, you know? Yeah. I mean, it may be, it may be 10, but when you're sitting in a tree and you hear the leaves and you can hear them as clear as day, then put the pin on them because he's not going to hear it. And that yeah. was one of the biggest things I learned that I've never, I've never duplicated that mistake since. And I think sometimes the hardest lessons are the best lessons, unfortunately, because that's the ones that sting. Um, but, you know, how much time do you have on an animal, you know, knowing your surroundings, knowing if it's going to rain or not. Prime example was to that uh, situation was just past fall that's going to air on Critical Mass Season 3 was the 193 hunt. I had him at, I think it was 36 or 37 yards, plus or minus. And he was quartering two, could have made the shot. A little quartering too, but I think I, I had in my abilities, I believe I could have made it. But I knew the rain was coming and I knew snow was coming. And I told myself that unless I'm 100% confident I'm going to 12 ring this thing, mm -hmm. I've got to let him go. And so I bet that on the traffic that he was walking, he was going to continue down that, that uh, uh, food plot edge and he was going to give me a quartering away shot. I took the gamble. That's what happened. And he ended up being, I think it was 48 or 49 yards. In that particular case, it wasn't windy. It was dead calm. He was at full alert because I grunted and stopped him. Stop him, and he uh, he was staring right at the blind. So I'm like, okay, call it 50 yards. I've got to put the pin right at his belly. And if you watch, he truly drops 12 to 18 inches, and that arrow goes right up into him. And obviously, an hour later, we know the rest of the story. But I think forward thinking. Is that other mental process that I go through every single sit I go into, which is I know the thermals, I know the weather, I know the fronts. Is it going to rain? Is it not going to rain? Um, and it's going to dictate what I'm going to do come come that hunt. And I'm not so sure everybody thinks of it that way. No less, and I'm sure most guys do range different things and try to try to memorize as many different objects that you range out there, so you don't have to minimize your movements and those type of things. Um, and if you notice, I always wear a muff around my waist, even if it's 60 degrees or minus 20. Not because of my hands, because that's where my rangefinder goes. And to Matt, you're asking a question about the rangefinder and all that. I try to simplify things as much as I can. And it's right, really right at my uh, belt buckle. Minimize movement. It's right in front of my chest or right in front of my, uh, my belly button. And I just grab it if I need it and slowly put it back. There's a big zipper I have in it and slide it back in. And those little, you know, I guess, tricks that I've learned over the years to have them quick, easy, and accessible um, is, is some of the things that allowed me to be, um, I guess, put the mounts on the wall, I guess, if you want to say. Yeah, there's certain times of year, to me, it's hard because <laughs> I like when you get to, say, late October, early November, where you start wearing a heavier garment. And I like, you know, the Nomad ones where I got a zipper pocket right here. Greg, are you there still? Yeah, there I'm still here. I froze up. Okay. So anyways, I like the zipper pockets right here. A lot of guys don't like to have something right there for, you know, just because you don't want it to get caught. Mm -hmm. Me personally, I like to be able to range and put it back in. And if I don't have that, I like to have a pocket right here so that I have the ability to range and put it back in my pocket right away. And and when I can, and a deer steps out that I'm, you know, when I'm getting ready to shoot, if I can at all do it, and usually it's when I have it in this pocket, leave my rate or leave my release on my D loop and have everything here to where I can range. 
and the D loop, you know, everything's still connected, put it back in. All I got to do is put my hand right back around and, and I shoot a regular caliper release, but I like to make sure that those, those are the things that I do because it's what makes me comfortable. Anytime where I've had to go outside of those limitations, I find myself getting into a panic of the movement. Like you said, you don't have the ability to have a lot of movement, you know, especially if you're in the timber, you're in a wide open or whatever, you, you got this and this, and there might be a doe looking at you, you know? So I always try to remember you know, I'm ranging all morning long. It seems like same spots over and over. Oh, it's still 25. Okay. Oh, it's still 30. But to remember that stuff, you know, so when the time comes, you may not need to range it. Cause you kind of lose your mind when a, when a deer shows up, like a lot of stuff goes out of your head that under normal circumstances would not be a problem to remember. Yeah, no doubt. So Greg, you know, we're talking about the mental side of it. I want to rewind back to the major league hunt that you were talking about on YouTube. So Okay. First shot happens, you miss. How do you mentally prepare to, to make the follow-up shot? And, and a lot of times, if a guy has a follow-up shot, it's usually at a, a, a greater distance. You may not have time to range. You, you know, what, what is the process? And you're a really good shot in general. So what's the process you're going through there? Because you got to be thinking, oh, crap, biggest deer of my life. I just shot under him. Now what? But you're, you're instantly knocking another arrow. I think as I've aged as a bow hunter, the one thing I've learned more of is to be aggressive. And I think there's a time and a place when you got to pull that trigger and that mindset. But when he, when I missed him, he went another, I'm going to call it 12 to 15 yards. And there was a doe that was, that was out of frame that you couldn't see that was just, oh, probably 35 or 40 yards from me. And she was looking right at me, looking right at me. Now he was looking at her. So I'm like, you know, I could feel Casey, like, what are you going to do next? I could feel him on the tree. And I'm like, I got two choices. Either I sit here and do nothing or I push and I try to kill him. And so I was like, I got nothing to lose at this point. Let's just go. And so I just moved steady, not really fast, but just relatively steady and slow and grab the arrow and act like he wasn't even there. If I had to move, I had to move. And I was like, I got to try something. And then I, I hit him on the, on the second shot. And then uh, he ran 48 or 49 or 47 yards. And that was between a V of a, v of a tree that it, I went and later measured. It was a six-inch window. And all I had was his backhand, but he was quartering away. So I'm like, if he's going to stand there, I'm going to stick another arrow in him. Why not? So I grabbed another arrow and threw it at 47, 48, 49 yards. And that just drove him all the way up in the cavity. So did you and range so, him there on the third shot? I did. I did. I knew exactly what it was. Um, he stood there. He got there right away. I grabbed my range finder very quickly, ranged it, grabbed an arrow, drew, and shot. I mean, it was – I'd love to see how fast it was, but it happened very quick. Um, but it's one of those things I think um, no different than when I go out west. I have shortened my learn curve, and I know, Matt, you had the, the, the wonderful opportunity going out to wild country a few years ago. And when you go out west and you have to do spot and stock, I know you're rifle hunting, but when you go spot and stock, you completely change your skill sets really, really quickly. And it sharpens your skills fast, potentially when the draw. You're drawing too soon, you're drawing too late. That's the other big mistake that I see a lot of white tail hunters do is they see them coming and they draw wise en route to you. Yeah, I, I made those same mistakes for years, which is you wait till them to get, in my opinion, you wait till them to get to you or past you depending on where it is you have obviously a broadside or quartering away. 
I never draw when he's in route to me. I always wait till he gets by me. Um, and I know that's patience, and that's a very hard thing to do. But you can only hold your bow for so long. And when they get to you or by you, they most likely won't see you draw. But if you draw while they're coming at you, you're sticking out like a sore thumb. Yeah, and this is a fine line there. And it's it's a matter of if you have any impediments, you know, they go behind a tree for, uh, you know, right in front of you, that's your chance or you got to really pick and choose. It's a cat and mouse game to make sure you pick and choose the right times. Because I, I mean, we, we've all been there. You draw at the wrong time and they catch you like mid draw. And now you're like, Oh, I got to go all the way. And then, you know, that might give them what they need to get the hell out of there. So it's, it's one of those things where you got to, it is a, I think you learn it by doing it and making a few mistakes all along the way. No mm-hmm. doubt. No doubt yeah. about it. And it yeah. It's a matrix of being, aggressive at the right time and patient at the right time. It's it, it, you, you can't be aggressive all the time, nor can you be patient all the time. They're probably in one, in one encounter with the deer, you're going to exercise both disciplines at different times within that same encounter. And that's hard. I think it's, you know, it's, you're developing your own killer instinct. Ultimately, like you, you had it in there at some point in your, you know, in your lineage and it's like, all right, you're retraining yourself, but what your killer instinct, the evolution was like, all right, I, now's my chance to kill this thing. You know, it's, it's a matter of learning it again. You had it at one point. It's just, it's up here. It's just a matter of, of going through it a couple of times and figuring it back out. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, we, it's, it's in all of our DNA for sure. Um, but as we all age, our life experiences change who we are. And unfortunately, those ones that burn the deepest are the best lessons. And trust me, I've had a lot of them in my earlier stages that have now put me in this position to execute more often than not. Yeah. Well, that video, like Greg said, you guys got to check it out. It's one, I mean, the thing's probably at like close to a million views now. I mean, it really took off. I, you took a lot of heat on it, but, you know, it was, I think, unfair and unwarranted because it, it's one of those things where, everybody's a backseat driver, you know, it's like shoulda, woulda, coulda, but you don't know until you're in it, man, you know, how it plays out, what goes on, how it goes down. You know, it's one of those things that I thought it showed a lot of poise to be able to follow up not once, but twice. And, and ultimately, you know, put, put a couple of arrows in that animal uh, of that magnitude, especially. Yeah. Well, I go ahead, Tim. Oh, no, you, you go ahead, Greg. I think it's one of those things that, uh, you know, if I could go back and now knowing us go back to the same situation today, I wouldn't have put that pin right on the crease of his, of his belly. I would have put it dead center now knowing that the wind covers up that arrow flight. Um, and that's why that's one of the biggest stories when someone asks me, you know, what's, what's your number one tip? Um, that's always my number one because it took me, you know, 25 years as a bow hunter to have that first experience that it didn't go my way. Mm-hmm. And I don't think too many guys really think that wind speed when you're in the timber, when it's that loud, that it's going to cover up a lot of your stuff. And that's a prime example of it. I mean, he was 30, 32, 35 yards, I think it was, on the first shot. And a shot I could make, I would hope, 10 out of 10 times. And I, I, where, I, where, where the arrow went is where I aim. I mean, I didn't miss it. I, I put it there. Yeah. Just did, but he didn't he didn't play the game that I thought I was going to play. But then on the flip side of it, you look at the 190, 194 that I shot this year in Missouri. 
he did exactly what I thought he was going to do, which is he dropped 12 to 18 inches. And when you go look at that and you slow mow it, slow motion, that drop, and you look at where the arrow was originally shot to where it lands on him and look at his back, it'll blow your mind. And I think that's those things that you've got to think of those things at the moment of truth, the process that in a five or six second period, whatever it is, to execute the kill. And yeah. I think that's the part that most people don't have or, or maybe don't think of, maybe don't have, that's probably unfair, but don't think of that thought process to go through when that moment of truth happens. And I think mm-hmm. that's, that's the part that I wish uh, there was a coaching set we could all go and attend. That's probably the biggest key that I could give anybody. It's interesting you say that, but my dad has been talking about this for years and he's actually talked about it being something we utilize inside DeerCast at some point, but where we, you know, the the hunter is taking you through his process, almost like um, watching game film or something like that. You know what I mean? So it's to, to help with the mental side of it. You know, I think there's something there. It's just, it would take a lot you know, it's a big project to dive into. It'd be really interesting because I think we all, you know, the great thing about bow hunting, there isn't a, there isn't a, a once or always or a philosophy that's, that's, that's best for everybody. It's a philosophy that we all get to nurture and, and kind of take on our own. And to listen to other people have the same conversation, I'd be fascinated to hear what their points are. You know, um, we're only as good as what we, what we learn from others and what we take in. And sharing these different thought processes only is going to make us all better. But the whole mental side of bow hunting in general, which you can apply it to guns as well, is just never discussed. No matter where you go, nobody talks about it. And I think it's the hardest thing. I mean, if you want to be a good archer, you practice a lot. You have a good setup. You just repeat, 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 and you're going to be good. Well, in a mental, how do, you, how do you get through that repeat, 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 repeat in a, in a mental, mental game? You, you really can't. So the more you talk about it, the more you talk about scenarios, I think the better off you're going to be at the moment of truth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Before we move on here, the one last thing to add there is the other hard element of it is for a lot of people, you might only have that opportunity one time a year to exercise that muscle, if you will. So, you know, that's something that's hard to keep that edge for the next season when you might only see one deer a year that you get a you know a chance to shoot so that that's something you know that has to be you got to think that through too i know mark told me many years ago and, and i know he coined this phrase from somebody else and I, I forget who he coined it from he said you know one arrow could be the difference between a crappy year or the best year of your life steve stoltz okay there you go <laughs> and I, I that rings so true to i think any bow hunter um who's out there whether it's 110 inch or 170 inch it doesn't matter it's the biggest theory of your life at the point and it's so frustrating if you can't execute and you're only as good as what the time you put in and i think sometimes our our expectations are probably not realistic and that falls on all of us mm-hmm. yeah well hopefully we've covered something that if you're a new bow hunter or even if you're a seasoned vet, but you maybe haven't given the mental game as much credit as it needs, hopefully you've heard something today that will help you kind of shallow out the learning curve because you don't want to, you don't want a whole lot of on the job learning when you're whitetail hunting because those opportunities are just so few and far between. No doubt. You know, and I, I would volunteer up my uh, Instagram, uh, which is Greg. Blessinger at Drury Outdoors. If anybody wants to DM me with any any questions at all, 
or any mental suggestions or even a, a boat set up, you have questions. I'll be happy to give you my experiences, what's works for me. It doesn't make right that it's going to work for you, but I can definitely maybe help, helpfully show, show up that learn curve a little bit. Can we give me your phone number, Greg, too? I'll just throw it out there. Yeah, Actually, he had that on there for a while. Yeah. I don't think I would recommend that to anybody based on some of the stuff that I was doing. So, um, we talked uh, about those African hunts. Yeah, that's kind of the path we went down. Yeah. Adventures and social media. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, how about we hop into the question of the day? All right. The question of the day is probably brought to you by RTP Outdoors, home of the groundbreaking, groundbreaker three in one food plot implement. Hi. I hunt in Wisconsin in the woods with little to no uh, brush. I was wondering if there's a way to improve the brush so that the deer like it and stay more in my area than my neighbors. And I was wondering if there's any way other than hinge cutting, uh, any help would be appreciated. Thank you. Okay, so Noah is a fellow, help me out, Greg, Wisconsinite? There you go, you nailed it. Hey, all right. Cheese curd, cheese head. There you go, that too. <laughs> Wisconsinian <laughs> and and his question is you know maybe he doesn't have the ability to hinge cut doesn't want to but it's a good one how do you retain deer in your property make it brusher when you're not going to hinge cut are there any other options for him uh, based on his question his location being you know I've lived here in Wisconsin now 20 22 23 years most of the timber around here has a ton of value I mean, it's really nice stuff. So I'm guessing he doesn't want to hinge cut because the timber probably has a ton of value. So mm. with that being said, your, my suggestion of alternatives would be obviously a control burn if that's an option. Or probably since he wants to get more brush, which would be a, a very easy thing to do, would be plant American plums, dogwood, uh, rough, roughly plum, uh, uh, gray, what do they call them, uh, flowering dogwood, Every dog with plums, any of those four or five species that you could plant will get anywhere from uh, eight to probably 12 to 13 feet and give you brush cover really quickly, really fast, um, give you a great way to get in and out if you want to cover cover uh, some exit and entry, or more importantly, it's going to give you a ton of woody browse, which at the end of the day, when you do a hinge cut, that's what you're trying to create anyway. So you're going to accomplish the same type of thing by planting these um, these plums. So that's where I would start. Um, banking on that. His timber has a value. Doesn't cut it. Sure. No, there you go. And thanks for submitting the question. If you want to have a question answered on the show, just go to duryoutdoors.com slash podcast and click the send voicemail button and leave your name location and the question that you have for us. And we will uh, get that on air. And Greg, uh, because you answered that question so well, we're going to send you a free loophole hat. (laughs) Oh, you've got one. Hey, on that, on that hinge cutting, I believe that, we just put up a new DOD TV episode regarding this. Mark and, and the guys on his farm uh, were out there doing it. So for those of you that are interested in hinge cutting, you can check it out in the DOD TV section over in DeerCast or uh, over in YouTube at the Jury Outdoors channel and uh, get a, a little bit more in-depth piece there about hinge cutting and what, what it can do for your property. And right. on top of that, Matt, I think you're going down a path that, that I've taken advantage of over the last decade, which is if you don't understand what you're trying to achieve and, and you're not an expert, there's a ton of experts out there like, you know, uh, 
Landon Legacy, Adam and, and Matt, those guys are amazing guys when it comes to consulting services. I know Grant Woods is out there. There's a ton of them. I don't know a few that are really more focused on whitetail hunting. Um, but I lean a lot on those type of information, those type of resources, because once you cut a tree or do something, it's probably there for your lifetime. You're not going to glue a, a, a tree back on. So you don't want to make mistakes. So before I start planning anything or doing any type of massive land improvements or adjustments, I always go online and read or find somebody who knows it much better than me so that, that when I hit the mark and spend the time and the money and the energy to put into it, I know that I'm, my, my goal is going to be achieved. So that's where I would also start. I think that's a great point. And, you know, that's even Mark and Terry, you know, when they, when they really want to understand something that they'll go to the expert to find it out, whether back in the day it was about timber cutting uh, they'd go to Ben Rising yeah. and he gave them all kinds of information, you know, or, and still to this day, um, or like you said, Dr. Grant Woods, he's provided them more information over the years, valuable information and still does to this day. They have a question, they go to Grant. And so, you know, there's, there's a lot of information. Grant does a hell of a job on growing deer.tv and, and giving out that info for free in a lot of ways. So, uh, it's out there. It's just a matter of uh, going out and finding it. And the way in the information age, it's a lot easier to find than it used to be. I mean, prime example of that is what you guys were with uh, DeerCast Track. I mean, you guys went to the best expert you guys could possibly dream up with Tracker John and help me out. Um, Bobby Colbert. Bobby yeah. Colbert. Um, you know, why not just go the best resource you can dig up? And there's another prime example of it. Don't try to be the expert. Go to the guys that live it every single day. No doubt. And I promise this is not a plug for DeerCast, but we cover, we've covered so many of these topics, especially around land man, land management in DeerCast. Every now and again, we get a question from someone that just says, Hey, I'm new to deer hunting. Where do I start? And it's really like, it's just head over to DeerCast and start searching for terms or going through our, our videos. There's just so much there. And whether you're starting out or been at it for a while, there's, there's something, literally something for everyone in there. That's part of the reason we did that. So it could shallow out the learning curve for folks. Well, and heck, how many articles are we up to in there? Those are, it's like an outdoor life or a field and stream or deer and deer hunting. It's its own publication at this point. Yep. Yeah. I think we're at 625 ish. So I mean, think about that. That's pretty incredible. It's a lot of knowledge in there. So, and you the guys, articles are free, you know, so all that we're, stuff's free. We're giving those away? We are. Oh, God. <laughs> That's why we you don't get paid, Tim. Oh, man. <laughs> I get paid in, in product every now and again. <laughs> oh, yeah. Crusher shampoo. It's about time for me to send you some deodorant. Or something. <laughs> well, I, I think those videos, guys, were the huge biggest uh, offering that you guys gave to uh, the deer cat out there was when you guys pulled out the archive of all the, the videos. Yeah, I mean, that isn't free. That, although right now it, has, it is free. It it's is free right now, right? Now. It's free now. Preview. Yeah. I mean, it's a, in this quarantine, it's crazy age that we're in right now. Trust me, I've, I've pulled out a few and watched them. I mean, they're, you know, when you watch other videos when you and you let and you sit yourself in other people's hunts, not only watch the kill, but watch what they're doing and watch the process. And when you break it down to Matt's point of a coach breaking down film, um, that's kind of my approach with white hunting. I break down white hunting like I break down a business. I put it in different segments and I approach different categories based on the needs and wants and what I'm trying to do with it in that particular time. And it seems to have worked. 
And when I watch a video, I truly break it down. I look at every angle that they're doing and why they're doing it and say, what would I have done differently? Or man, they did that right. They could have done this. Yeah, I'm with you. Through time, I've kind of picked up, you know, back in the day when I was editing, it was because I was kind of forced to watch it (laughs) and watch the source footage and all that stuff. But then through time, it was like, as I got out and started hunting more, I was putting two and two together. It's like, okay, Mark wears his binoculars this way. And it's not being a fanboy. It's like, all right, if he does that, there's probably some reason why he's doing that. Oh, it's because he can throw it up and put it back down and get it out of the way and in lieu of having it around his neck like that. Mm-hmm. It, it, that stuff, you can only, you know, you can learn the hard way or you can see them do it and emulate it. And believe me, not everything you should emulate when you see it on TV. I get it. But <laughs> in these instances, you know, I have found that I'm picking up things and I see him or whoever doing, and it has helped me. It's like getting little tips and tactics mm-hmm. through them without them even, they don't even think twice about it. You know, that's just their instinct to do it that way because they found it out or figure it out at some point, or maybe they saw it somewhere and, and now they're doing it that way. And those types of things have helped me tremendously over the years. I mean, I think we're obviously in the, in the entertainment business, no question. But the way I watch our videos and I watch every single YouTube clip you guys put together, I watch every single video you guys ever do. And I, I probably DVR about 25 to 27 shows a week in the outdoor industry. Why? Because I want to see what other people are doing and why they're doing it. And as you start to pick different pieces apart from everybody, you can basically have a better tool set for yourself. It's amazing what you learn when you walk into a TV show with that mindset instead of an entertainment mindset. Yeah, no doubt. Speaking of entertainment, you boys ready for some? Yeah, let's hear it. No, wait, no, we don't have entertainment. It's the wildlife word segment. Sorry. Let's do it. It's it's multiple choice. Uh, so this week's wildlife word is courtship display. Is courtship just courtship or courtship? Courtship. Got it. All right, I'm in. It's a, it's a small wooden boat, I believe, Tim. Wow, I asked. Courtship display. Is it a a television sitcom starring Bill Bixby, uh, starring Bill Bixby that ran from 1969 to 1972? Is it B, behaviors intended to attract a mate? C, field dressing your boyfriend or girlfriend's deer? Or D, using John Deere green paint to commit vandalism on municipal property? (laughs) I think it's B. I think it's B, but that depends on who you ask. They might say C. Yeah. I, what I find funny and what you chose here, though, is that you chose a character from the 60s. Like, how old are you, man? This is a podcast. You're, mm-hmm. you're a relatively young man, but like, much like your personality, you took it to an old man type of place. <laughs> and, you know, and, Timmy's an old soul, Matt. Timmy's oh, an old soul. Believe me, I know. <laughs> Greg, Greg, are you familiar with the sitcom The Courtship of Eddie's Father? I am not, Tim. Oh, come on. I, I am, actually. I am. Thank you. But uh, <laughs> but probably no one else. Is. I was going to say, I'd like to see how many of the viewers that watch this understand what that is. I'd like to see how many viewers we have. <laughs> well, <laughs> I live for that one person who's like the fan club president of the courtship of Eddie's father, who's like, ah, there's a reference to my show. Ding ding, got that's what, one. That's what I live for. Yeah. 
It was actually a pretty good show. So courtship display is a set of displays, uh, a, a set of display behaviors in which an animal, usually a male, attempts to attract a mate. The mate exercises choice, so sexual selection, acts on display, like Tom strutting for hens or Buck's posturing for does. Well, I could go a few other places with it too, but I'll just say here's probably a good place to stop the show. Maybe going like this. <laughs> well, thanks everyone Talk for listening. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was corkship. That's what I was doing. Ah, gotcha. A totally different thing. <laughs> thanks everyone for listening. To the new listeners, welcome aboard. We're glad to have you. Please share the show with your friends. We keep pumping out shows every week. For us, deer hunting is a lifestyle. It's not just something we wait till August, September, or October to get into. So if you love hunting and you got buddies that love hunting too and they need a hunting fix, definitely share the show with them on whatever podcast platform they're listening, whether it's YouTube or DeerCast or Apple Podcast or Google Play, whatever podcast platform you're on, chances are the show is there. So and give us share some away, feedback. Please. Give us some feedback, rating, whatever. You know, let us know how we're doing, and and uh, that all helps as well. So, well, our most recent feedback in the Apple uh, Place in, in Apple Podcast just said, "Stop it." Oh. One, one star. <laughs> Well, and we have no way to delete those. So try to be nice. We're stuck there. But it does really help. And it's not just, we're not just asking for great ratings. We really want to know what you guys think and what you want more of or less of. And so please uh, give us a holler. Let us know what you think. All right. Greg, thank you for stopping by and having you on. Hey, thanks, guys. Appreciate it. All right. Good luck well, this year, buddy. If I know you, I know that you're going to have a few Jim Dandies in your sights. Uh, that's, the, that's the goal. We've already got them picked out. We just got to make sure that we can find them again. So I'm already looking ahead to this year and next year. So always planning ahead. So we'll see what the outcomes will be. He's Good deal. Chess. Hey, I'm looking ahead to next year as well. Yeah. Yes. I look forward to that. Hopefully um, that comes sooner than later. Yeah, so I've been putting in for Iowa points. I've never hunted Iowa before. I had never put in for points, and Greg has graciously invited me to come up. I think his line of thought was, by the time Matt actually gets enough points, maybe he'll forget about it, but I'm not forgetting. <laughs> no, no, we've got we've got plenty to go around. It's, uh, you know, there's there's no place like Iowa. I mean, it's just, uh, as you know, it's it's truly driven by the Iowa DNR. They've got to figure it out. I wish other states would duplicate their philosophy um, because it is a, it is a special place. No doubt. I look forward to seeing it. All right. Well, we look forward to people joining us in our special place next week on the podcast. The more, you know, <laughs> Thanks, guys. all right. See us. Peace out.